0: Well, good evening, I know people are still coming in, just make yourselves comfortable and uh, we'll go ahead and get started. Let me uh, say a prayer for us and we'll dive right into a fascinating lesson tonight. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your grace, the mercy you've poured out on us. I pray that as we open your word tonight, uh, we will engage our minds and and reason together and at the end that our faith might be better founded in our knowledge and that our love for you would grow, in Christ's name, amen. Amen. Well you guys know the number for texting questions and we are going to, let me just frame kind of where we are. We are going to do chapters 17 and 18 of the book of Revelation and where we are is we have been through most of what's called the tribulation. Chapters 1 through 3, letters to the seven churches. Chapters 4 through 19 we had basically God judging the world system if you will. We had seven seals being opened, bad stuff happened. Then we had seven trumpets being blown, worse stuff happens. And last week we poured out seven bowls of wrath, catastrophic things happen. And the next thing to happen is in chapter 19 with Armageddon, but there's this interesting and very profound little interlude in chapter 17 and 18 and that's what we're going to talk about. It is the ultimate church and state issue and uh, it really culminates explaining a lot of history. Before I jump into that, this is just a reminder. I teach Revelation with the four major views. And I do need to tell you, I'm going to be really fair to present these views, but that doesn't mean that we're in agreement with everything that all these views say. For example, and I just want to be careful about that because sometimes people think that, well, you know, you believe this, you believe that. I do have some opinions about what the text says, but these are all ways Christians have honestly wrestled with the text to try to understand it. Most of these approaches are simply trying to answer the question, when did or when will these events happen? But, for example, there are controversial things in some of these issues. Uh, For example, futurists in general who believe this is going to happen in a seven-year period in the future generally believe in a rapture meaning uh, people leaving the earth as a separate event from the second coming. Symbolic point of view goes, no, don't, don't agree with that at all. Another one is the historicist view is, and we'll talk a little bit more about this, is really focuses a lot of the meaning of this portion of Revelation on the papacy. It's, it's not a specific Catholic institution, but it's the institution of the papacy. Some futurists will do that as well. Other views do not see it that way. So I just want you to know that we're going to look at this from some different lenses, and I think it gets us to engage the text and begin to reason uh, together and say, what is this text trying to say? So we're going to look at it from several points of view. All of these points of view are historically orthodox Christian points of view. In other words, there are other ways to look at Revelation, but these points of view are orthodox, historic, honest attempts to wrestle with the Scriptures. So let's talk about uh, what this, this section is going to talk about. We are going to talk about the ultimate end of the battle of church and state because that's what's been going on throughout history, and that's what the book of Revelation is going to talk about. Satan, who is, the, Jesus said, the ruler of this present world, in rebellion against God. And the book of Revelation helps us understand current events and historical events in that lens, that there's a cosmic issue going on. Ephesians chapter 6 in the New Testament says, for we don't war against flesh and blood. I mean, it, we do in some sense, but it's saying essentially our battle isn't just a random you know, battle with flesh and blood. It is a battle against the rulers and principalities, the forces of evil in the world. And that's very consistent with God's message throughout history. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, two huge symbols. These two chapters, by the way, are so symbolic. We're going to decode a few of the symbols, uh, but just time won't permit us to do everything. But I want to give you a couple of big symbols. You're going to see Rome and Babylon figure really prominently in this. So the city of Rome, which represents a number of things. The city of Babylon, which represents to the Jews uh, the empire of, of Babylon, which had huge significance. And I want to talk to you about what those two mean before we dive into the text. But to set the stage, I want to go back in time to the era of John writing the book of Revelation. In other words, he's writing these visions down that God has shown him. The preterists generally think that he's writing it in the early 60s A.D., not that long after the resurrection of Christ. Our view for the rest of these views is he's writing it in the 90s A.D. Not a huge difference, but I want to tell you something that happened in the early 60s A.D. that hopefully will get our mind right to understand what Rome and Babylon really mean. There is a Roman historian, his name is Tacitus, Tacitus was born about 56 A.D., if memory serves me, about 56 A.D. So. 20 years after the resurrection of Christ, he died after 100 A.D., but he wrote a history, and he's really a contemporary. I mean, he lived through a lot of the things that he wrote about. I want to tell you something he wrote about, a specific incident that happened in 64 A.D. So that's a time period where Peter and Paul were out preaching, the apostle John is out preaching the gospel, and Nero is the emperor of the Roman Uh, world. And so in 64, something interesting happens in Rome. Nero, he's crazy pretty much, but Nero decides on a little urban renewal. And unfortunately for Nero, not everybody who lived in the areas he wanted to renew were willing to let him renew the city. And he just thought, man, these slums just look so bad. So history would indicate that Nero started a fire Worst fire Rome had ever seen. I mean, a lot of people died. Massive damage, just horrific. And so, voila, he got his urban renewal. But he didn't want to be responsible for it. I mean, that would be catastrophic. Even the emperor can't get away with killing a bunch of his subjects and starting a fire. So here's what Tacitus said the emperor Nero did in 64. And this is a great insight into what happened. He said, "...neither human resources, nor imperial munificence, nor appeasement of the gods..." In other words, Nero was, was trying to deflect attention, "...eliminated the suspicions that the fire had been instigated." In other words, everybody thought, I think Nero set this fire and he so he was trying to convince people he didn't. "...to suppress this rumor, Nero fabricated scapegoats and punished with every refinement the notoriously depraved Christians." And uh, I'll tell you some other time about why they were considered depraved. Tacitus thought Christians were bad guys. This is, by the way, this is going to start to sound really eerily similar to our world, unfortunately. And he punished the notoriously depraved Christians. Their originator, someone named Christ, had been executed in Tiberius's reign by the governor of Judea, Pontius Pilate. By the way, this is an extra-biblical reference to what the Bible says happened. In other words... What the Bible says is a matter of history. So Tacitus said this guy Christ was executed in Tiberius' reign by Pontius Pilate. Well, the first thing Nero did was he had self-acknowledged Christians arrested, and their deaths were made farcical. He dressed them in wild animal skins, and they were torn to pieces by wild dogs. Or he crucified them. Or he would dip them in tar and stick them, crucify them on poles, and light them at night like torches around the city. He said, and uh, as substitutes for daylight. He said, despite their guilt as Christians, Tacitus is no friend to Christians, and the ruthless punishment that it deserved because they were Christians, the victims were pitied because it was felt that they were being sacrificed to one man's brutality rather than being sacrificed for the national interest." Isn't that interesting? I mean, it's interesting in a lot of ways. One, that Tacitus thinks Christians are not, not good people and not good citizens, but that Nero's uh, brutality was thought to be excessive. He wasn't against crucifying Christians. He just thought this was excessively brutal. I tell you that uh, for several reasons. One, I want you to see how historically grounded the Bible is. This is the environment. This is the early uh, persecution. In the 90s, much worse than this. Much worse. This was the early uh, persecution in Nero's time. So in Domitian's reign, about 95, when John's likely writing this, persecution much, much worse than this. And so this was the environment for the Christians of the time. So I tell you that so that when we talk about these symbols, you'll understand what they were thinking of when they see these symbols. We're gonna talk about a a woman, a prostitute, sitting on a beast, a beast you have met before, and it's gonna be a symbol of two places, Rome and Babylon. For Christians, Rome was a symbol of an all-powerful, completely oppressive, evil empire. I mean, you heard what they were doing to Christians. They were brutal to the people that they conquered and that they suppressed and so Rome is always in the scripture going to be a symbol of that quintessential empire that's opposed to God its evil in every way you can imagine Babylon if you remember back in the history of the Jews the Babylonian Empire and their headquarters was Babylon were the ones responsible in 586 BC so about 600 years before the time of Christ completely destroying Jerusalem. They too were very brutal. They killed easily a million Jews when they uh, conquered Jerusalem and conquered that area and they were just brutal. Babylon came to be a symbol to the Jews of an evil, brutal, oppressive empire but also one that was spiritually hugely opposed to God. They had a pantheon of gods, and they tried to stamp out the Jewish worship. So they were politically and economically oppressive. They were also spiritually uh, very hostile to God. So those two symbols are set in their experiences with those two specific empires. Rome and Babylon are used actually all through the scriptures, but heavily in the book of Revelation as potentially pointing to those specific kingdoms but more likely talking about any oppressive, brutal kingdom throughout history. Does that make sense? Okay. Let's jump into the scripture. This is an ancient engraving picturing what we're about to to talk about. This is uh, chapter 17. Let me read you the first six verses, and then we'll talk about what this looks like and what people, what the different views think is happening. He said, one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls, remember we just poured out the seven bowls of wrath and, catastrophic things happened, came and said to me, said to John, I'm going to show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits on many waters. With her the kings of the earth committed adultery and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. Then the angel carried me away in the spirit to a desert and there I saw this fantastic vision, a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names, and this beast had seven heads and ten horns. You met this beast back in chapter 13, described exactly this way, and it is the beast that we call the Antichrist. So she's sitting on this beast. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet, royal colors, and was glittering with gold, clearly rich, affluent, precious stones and pearls. She held a golden cup in her hand filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. The title was written on her forehead, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the abomination of the earth. I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of the saints, meaning of God's people, the blood of those who bore a testimony to Jesus. So it's a pretty fantastic vision. This woman says her name is Babylon. She is Babylon the Great. So is she the city? Is she the empire? Is she in some way symbolizing the evil of the empire? We'll see what the different views think about this, but I wanted you to see that, okay, this lady is bad news. No matter how you look at it, this is tapping into this symbol of evil. And she's sitting on the Antichrist, so there's something really unholy happening here. A couple of symbols, by the way. Prostitution, sexual immorality in apocalyptic literature like this, like Revelation, is almost always talking about spiritual unfaithfulness. You'll see that all through the Old Testament. Let me give you a few verses for those of you that just want to write this down. I'm not going to go through it, but Isaiah 121... Jeremiah chapter 2, you'll see this in Exodus 16, Uh, Hosea 2, Hosea 4, those are just a few places where you'll see this direct correlation where God says, I'm going to use sexual immorality and particularly prostitution to represent a spiritual act, which is unfaithfulness spiritually to God. So you understand that this woman being called a prostitute is saying something about being unfaithful or in opposition to God. It has nothing to do with morality at all. It's a symbol. Second thing is, you'll see uh, a woman like this who misleads people. You notice that one of the things that happened is the uh, kings of the earth and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. What they're saying is, is, She's giving them of her spiritual unfaithfulness, and they're intoxicated, meaning they are led astray by her. You're going to see the idea of a Jezebel. Back in chapter 2, when we were talking about the letters to the seven churches, they actually said there's a Jezebel in one of these churches. Well, not literally the Jezebel of history, whom I'll talk to you about this Sunday, by the way. Not literally the Jezebel of history, but what did Jezebel do? She led people away from God to go worship other gods. So you see the similarity between the prostitute, the Jezebel. It's the same idea of leading people away from God. So this woman is someone who's going to be heavily engaged and opposed to God in that way. So what do the different views think about who the woman is? we will talk about the woman and the beast and what's happening. Well, the preterists, if you remember a preterist view, understands this part of Revelation as talking about the fall of Jerusalem back in 70 AD. And so I'm not talking about it much because they fix this in something that's already happened in history. So they would understand the woman as either being Jerusalem, who was unfaithful to God, God's people were unfaithful, consequently were punished, or the Roman Empire, that she represents Rome, Babylon, Rome, same symbolic idea. You'll see she's also later referred to in a way that makes you think, well, she may be Babylon or she may be Rome. Both of those cities have the same symbolic significance. So they would say Rome or Jerusalem. So I'm just going to leave that. Uh, With that view, that's how you would understand this. The historicist view which basically says all of these things are giving us a road map of history between the first coming of Christ to the second coming. And if you remember, they the historicist view understands most of this being fixed in the Middle Ages, the late Middle Ages, and the Catholic Church was very dominant. And the people who, who really understood this view of Revelation were the were Reformers, the Protestants. So think... Martin Luther, John Calvin, I mean all the reformers, John Wesley, and I'll show you a quote of John Wesley here in a second, they're going to understand this woman being an unfaithful religious organization, which to them was the papacy, the Catholic Church. For example, John Wesley, when he was commenting on verse 5, where it says, "Mystery, Babylon the Great, uh, the mother of prostitutes, He said Benedict XIII, he's talking about a specific pope in the 1700s, in his proclamation of 1725, used these words, the Catholic and Apostolical Roman Church is the head of the world, the mother of all believers, the faithful interpreter of God, and the mistress of all the churches. He's going to lay that against that verse 5 and say, this is the Catholic Church in that era, is fulfilling this prophecy. Uh, In modern times, that historical view is not so popular. Uh, Seventh-day Adventists hold to this understanding of Scripture and view the Catholic Church in this way. Jehovah Witnesses hold to this view of Scripture, but it's not so much the Catholic Church as that this great prostitute is anybody who's not a Jehovah's Witness. It's a kind of equal opportunity, and anybody can be the great prostitute. So the historicist view is not as popular, but you can see how they, they would tend to see this woman as some kind of unfaithful religion. Now, the futurist view, if you remember, are looking at this passage and saying, actually, all of this is going to happen in a seven-year period in the future. Some futurists think like in our very near future because things don't look so good, but it'll be a seven-year period and that this will happen near the end. And what will happen is the Antichrist, the beast, is going to use some kind of false religion, and enlisted as the anti... I'm going to call the Antichrist he, but that's not necessarily the case, but as he builds this worldwide empire with which he's about to attack God's people. So futurists are going to look at this and say, this woman is in some way representative of Rome. This woman is either the Roman Catholic Church or a confederation of churches who become unfaithful to God and ally themselves with this political leader called Antichrist as he builds his worldwide kingdom in this seven-year period of the tribulation. There are a handful of futurists who say, no, that's not the best way to understand it. They think that she's called Babylon, that there will actually, this new kingdom will be headquartered in Babylon. This is a map of the Middle East, modern Middle East, and you see Baghdad there. Babylon, the ruins of Babylon are very close to Baghdad. I mean, Baghdad is kind of the modern Babylon. It is the capital of Iraq, which is the remnant, basically, of the old Babylonian empire. So some futurists say, no, this woman literally is Babylon, and Baghdad will be the headquarters, if you will, of this worldwide empire. So if you're a futurist, one of the ways to understand this woman is in very specific, very literal, very political terms as opposed to religious, spiritual terms. Okay. One more view, the symbolic view. Now the symbolic view doesn't set it in the past like the preterists or as a road map to history like the historical view or even as something happening in a specific future seven-year period. The symbolic view says, look, these are powerful symbols. They have happened before and they will happen again. And so this woman is a symbol of all of the oppressive governments that are opposed to God. They are a, she is a symbol of every government that has been opposed to God throughout history. And in fact, my contention to you is, regardless of the view, is these chapters and this talk about Babylon is the ultimate description of the conflict of church and state, meaning you have God's people and you have governments, empires, kingdoms, some kind of political economic powers in history. And what Revelation is telling us is it is inevitable that there will be a clash because empires always want to dominate the church. And I would argue that from a symbolic point of view, they would say that happened with Babylon in 600 BC, it happened with Rome from the time of Christ to 300 AD, it has happened in other kingdoms and countries, and it is happening now. In other words, the church in America, in the world today, is under tremendous pressure from political and economic institutions. In other words, a symbolic view would say, this woman is every nation that has ever tried to oppress the church or oppress God's people. Does that make sense? That's how the different views are going to understand this woman and what the the scripture is going to say about this woman is really profound and powerful. So on the one hand, it speaks to the inevitability of governments attempting to overcome God and God's people. But watch what chapter 18, and I'm going to skip around just a little bit. The key point of this passage is, okay, so what happens to this woman? Listen to what it says. A mighty angel picked up a boulder the size of a large millstone. Have you ever seen a millstone? They're huge stones. Threw it into the sea and said, that's the kind of violence that the great city of Babylon will be thrown down. This is talking about either the Antichrist's empire in the seven years, or if you're a historicist, the papacy, that, or the, the Roman Catholic Church and other churches, every church that's been unfaithful to God will be cast down. Or if you're a symbolic sense, every government that's ever been opposed to God has been judged and destroyed. In other words, let me put it simply, the church is still here and Rome is not. Make sense? So listen, this is the judgment on it. The music of harpists and musicians will never be heard in you again. No workman will be found in you again. The sound of factories, a millstone, will never be heard in you again. The light of a lamp will never shine in you again. This is a final judgment on all the kingdoms of the world, or specifically the Antichrist kingdom. The voice of a bridegroom and bride will never be heard in you again. By your magic, all the nations were led astray. In her was found the blood of the prophets and the saints and all who have been killed on the earth. In other words, this is basically saying all of the systems that are opposed to God will be judged and will be destroyed, regardless of your view of revelation. And that's a powerful message. It says in one sense, it's inevitable that church and state will come into conflict. And in the second point, it says, and it is inevitable that God will indeed destroy the forces that are allied against him. And I hope that's encouraging. That's why, by the way, Christians under persecution for 2,000 years have read this book a lot. I know that in the American church in recent past, we haven't really read Revelation a lot, partly because we've been pretty comfortable and affluent. But I want you to understand that Christians throughout history have read this book a lot for this message, for this assurance from God that he was going to prevail. So that's the woman... What people think, that she is either a Babylon or a renewed Rome, or but in some way an unfaithful religious uh, institution. Let me jump into uh, talking about the beast a little bit, and then we'll uh, turn to some questions. By the way, this, this idea of the message, I thought I'd give you a couple of quotes, this idea of you see the kingdoms or a specific kingdom opposed to God and the inevitability of judgment... Bruce Metzger says this well. He says, The message of the book of Revelation concerns the character and the timeliness of God's judgment, but not only of people, but nations, principalities, powers, authorities, institutions, and to the extent that ecclesiastical denominations, in other words, churches, have succumbed to the lure of power and prestige. In other words, have, to use biblical language, prostituted themselves, meaning become unfaithful to God and pursued the gods of the culture, the words of John are applicable also to present-day church structures. In other words, he's going to look at it from a symbolic view and say, this message is about corporations and organizations and even churches, that if one is not faithful to God, one comes under the judgment of God. Uh, Beal is another commentator says this, here in a paragraph is the difference between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. What ultimately divides the two is the willingness to recognize who God is and give him the honor and worship that he alone is due. Particularly in the West, we live in a very anthropocentric culture, basically meaning we are very human-centric. It's all about me, it's all about us, and we'll decide what's right and we'll decide what's wrong. And if we do not resist this, we will find ourselves slipping all too easily into the kingdom of darkness. What he's saying about this is what you see is the picture of the beast and the woman, and you see God, and it's a stark difference. One worships humanity, one demands worship as God, and that we will find ourselves in one of those two camps, and that the kingdom of darkness will ultimately be destroyed. That that's one of the key ideas. You can argue... Actually, the most exciting things that are going to happen in Revelation are going to happen in the next three lessons. But you could argue that this is the crux of the book right here. This is the ultimate message that God wants to give, and that is, woe to Babylon. Babylon the great is destroyed. Well, the beast is interesting. Let's Get a little bit about the beast, and then we'll we'll deal with some questions. He says, all right, well, I know that there's a lot of symbols. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven hills on which the woman sits. This is partly why people think of Rome, the city set on seven hills. They are also seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come. We'll talk about that in a second. But when he does come, he has to remain a little while. The beast, who once was, now is not, is an eighth king, and he belongs to the seven, and he's going to destruction. This gets about as cryptic as you can get. The ten horns are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but who for one hour will receive authority as kings along with the beast. They have one purpose and will give their power and authority to the beast. They will make war against the lamb, but the lamb will overcome them because he is lord of lords and king of kings. Then the angel said to me, The waters you saw where the prostitute sits are, count these, people Multitudes, nations, and languages. What does the number four signify? Created order. In other words, this woman rules over all of this world. Jesus said Satan is the ruler of this present world. And it's just curious, you'll notice this number four show up whenever it's symbolic of the created order. The beast and the ten horns will hate the prostitute. They will bring her to ruin and leave her naked. They will eat her flesh and burn her with fire. So let's talk about that. Let's decode that a little bit. The historicist is going to say that what's happening here is that what you saw is you see the, the papacy and the Catholic church and other organizations that were unfaithful to God, and historically they have allied themselves with the kingdoms of the earth, particularly if you think about the Renaissance Catholic church. Back from the 1500s up until... Uh, the 1700s. You see the Catholic Church being very political. Historicists are going to look at that and they're going to say the woman is the papacy, the beast, or the political entities. And they hooked up together to dominate the world. But in the end, the political entities turned on the Catholic Church. And that did happen in the French Revolution. And historicists will say it's going to happen again in the future. This is where historicists think that the story has caught up with modern times. Futurists, they just love, you futurists love this chapter. I'm going to tell you why, because we've got all kinds of kings flying around doing all kinds of interesting stuff. All right, so futurists want to look at this, seven kings, five who were, one who is, and one who is to come. Futurists generally would say that those five were the five great kingdoms before John's time. That would be Egypt and Assyria and Babylon and Persia, Greece, and then the one that is would be Rome at the time of this writing, the Roman Empire, and that the one to come will be in that seven years in the future, this Antichrist, this really charismatic figure is going to come out of nowhere and band together all the kingdoms of the earth and effectively be a worldwide ruler. That's that seventh king, that's the beast, That's the Antichrist. So they're going to understand those seven kings as basically all these evil kingdoms leading to the ultimate evil kingdom in the seven years in the future uh, of there. that the uh, Antichrist is going to be capping off the seven kings. Now the ten horns, are ten other kings that are in service with the Antichrist. So if you're a futurist, think seven-year period in the future, Antichrist comes, starts to rule the world, enlists some kind of false prophet, some religious institution that gets people to even worship the Antichrist, you know, Allah emperor worship with the Roman Empire, that's why that symbol of Rome is used for this, that you'll see ten other kings who bring their armies together with the Antichrist to go attack God's people. That will happen next week, by the way, when Israel will be attacked by the Antichrist and ten kings. So I'm just telling you that's what's going to happen next Wednesday. But futurists like to start thinking, who might they be? Might this be China and Russia and an, a, a group of European kings? And there are several interesting theories out there. But futurists are generally looking at the world right now And starting to figure out who's going to line up together and ally themselves against God's people. So futurists tend to be interpreting current events in light of getting ready for this seven-year period of time. Futurists look back to Daniel chapter 2. You may or may not remember this, but it's an interesting read. But you've got that great statue that Daniel saw that predicted the Roman Empire. And the ten toes would be these ten kings. And they would understand that that prophecy is talking about this very last little seven years of time. Also look at Daniel chapter 9, which is an apocalyptic vision of the end times. We talked about the 70 weeks and that 70th week, that seven days, which is symbolic of the seven years of the tribulation. So if your futurists see all this coming together as very prophetic and very specific, that something geopolitical is going to happen that there'll be these kingdoms come together and they will attack God's people. Whether that's headquartered in Babylon, as some futures think, or whether it's headquartered in Rome. And then the false prophet will be some kind of, of unfaithful religion that will point people to worship the Antichrist instead of God. The symbolic view understands the ten kings and the seven kingdoms as, as symbolic numbers. For example, the number seven... Symbolic's going to argue, why seven kings? Why not 14? Right? They're going to argue that you know maybe it's not seven specific kings. Maybe seven is the number of completeness, which it is. And it says, you know, seven represents the entire kingdoms of all of history. In other words, seven is just that number of fullness. And they're going to say, this is symbolic of every evil kingdom that's ever been. The ten kings... 10 fingers, 10 toes. That's kind of natural power. It's like these are the kingdoms of the world exercising their economic and political power to attack and punish God's people. So I hope that this kind of helps you see how people look at this. Some very specifically in the future, the futurists. Some very specifically in the past, the historicists. And others very much saying this is a recurring idea. God's telling us about things that have happened, are happening, and probably will also happen. But the inevitable result is that the kingdoms of the world, Babylon the Great, is going to fall. It's going to be judged and destroyed by God. And so God stops right here in the middle of this revelation, right at the end of those three sets of seven judgments, very symbolic, right before the final battle to say, in case you're worried about how this turns out, I'll just tell you now, Babylon the Great is destroyed. That's very comforting because when Christians, for example, were being persecuted in Roman times, brutally persecuted, they thought to themselves, this Roman Empire might kill me. And they killed tens of thousands of Christians. But it will not prevail over my God. I will live in eternity with my God because this kingdom cannot dethrone the king of kings and lord of lords. And so they read that understanding, my body may die, but my king will not be overcome. People today in parts of the world say, my government might hunt us down and put us in prison or might kill us. But I read this with the assurance that God says, don't worry, when you are with me in eternity, they'll be destroyed. Does that make sense? That's how Christians have understood it. I would argue that's why this vision is here. It's not just to tell you a roadmap of the future so God could show you how smart he is. This is God saying, you need to know this because the world's going to look really powerful, but I'm going to tell you what's really going on. All right? Let me pause there for questions, and then there are a couple of interesting lessons I'd like to tease out of that.
1: Um, futurists, like Hal Lindsay and others, have been um, matching up h- current events and predicting the end of time for decades now, mm-hmm. they've been wrong so far. Is it unbiblical to think that we can predict these things?
0: Well, that's a good question. Futurists, and I, I'm joking around a little bit, I really don't want to make fun of any of these views, but the futurists are just, it's just too irresistible. I mean, they just love the current events. But in all seriousness, if you understand this this way, you would tend to be wanting to match it up. Now, to be fair, futurists aren't going to... I mean, there are some that would do, but I'm going to talk about main mainstream folks. They're not going to pick a date and say, okay, this is when the rapture will happen. This is when the seven years start. This is when the second coming happens. Because they believe the Bible, that even Jesus said, only the Father knows the day and the hour of the second coming. So they understand that, and they're not predicting it's going to happen at this time. What they are saying is, look, we're trying to be wise and read the Scripture and look around and read the times and say, we think that these things are coming together and perhaps we're really close. So what they have been saying is they believe that these things are going to happen in a really specific period of time by a real worldwide kingdom that really is going to make war on God's people and then God is, Jesus is, is indeed going to return and destroy the kingdoms of the world. They're basically focused on seeing the signs of the time, not so much to predict the exact date, but to say we must be getting close to the tribulation and the rapture. So I would say to be fair, they're really more focused on are we close as opposed to trying to predict what only God knows.
1: You have said that um, one view of this is that all non-God-fearing governments would be destroyed. When you say that, do you mean the nation as a whole is destroyed? Uh, For example, if America ceases to fear God and is destroyed, does that mean that all the people of the unfaithful government suffer the wrath?
0: Yes, let's talk about that. That's a really good question. Okay. First of all, one assumption that we make as, as Americans, and I don't mean this to be critical, it's sort of, let me put it this way, if you asked a fish what water tastes like, the fish wouldn't understand your question, all right? It's like, what are you talking about? It's like me asking you, what, is, what does your air taste like? What? I don't know. Well, you breathe it every second? Well, I don't know. Don't think about it. Americans are kind of like that about self-centeredness. Again, no offense but we just are sort of raised to think it's about us, okay? Now, I know that as believers, we know better than that. We've turned away from that, but I'm just saying our tendency is to think, okay, this is kind of about us. And so we tend to approach it that way. So this question is a very good question. So having said that, let me move out of that self-centered view and let's try to look at this from God's point of view. When God judges a nation, if you will, that nation falls. When a nation falls, bad stuff happens to the people in that nation. You can think about Israel in the past. You can think about Jesus when he said, look, God makes the rain fall on the just and the unjust. Does that mean God's okay with the just and the unjust? No. But it says that, you know, God picks his time when to do the sorting. Jesus talked about the parable of the weeds and the sorting of the fish. He had a lot of judgment parables. And most of the point was is that God doesn't pick out the good people and say, oh, wait, there's about to be a bus crash. I'm just going to get the true believers out of there, and I'll let the evil people go ahead and crash. The Scripture says God doesn't really work that way because God has a very eternal perspective. We don't we tend to wrestle with that and say, ooh, I've just got this little life here and you need to preserve this life. That's not God's perspective. So I just want to make that point first. Now, if you look at it from God's perspective, when a nation falls are, quote, I hate to use this phrase, good people. In other words, are there people who seek God who get hurt? Yes, there are. I mean, if America, God forbid, would get attacked and overpowered in a war, would there be God-fearing people who got killed? Well, yeah. You know, Unfortunately, there are God-fearing soldiers who get killed in the world today. God's perspective is that is indeed how he is going to work in history. But from God's perspective, look at it this way. Those who are believers have eternal joy. This little 60, 70 years of life is really not the main focus of his event. God loves his people, but he's never promised us, never in the scriptures he say, I'll make your life go really well and you'll never get sick, you'll never have pains, and you'll never die. That's never been what God said. He said, I'll tell you what, your body will die, duh, but you will live forever, and you'll have an uncorruptible body. In other words, he's got this eternal perspective. So long-winded way of saying, yes, when nations are judged and nations fall, do people who are God-fearing in there also suffer sometimes? Indeed, they do.
1: Is it possible that the Antichrist is a conglomeration of all evil leaders throughout history instead of just a specific individual?
0: That's a good question, and it will depend on your view. In other words, if you take a symbolic view of Revelation, you'd say, yeah, actually, Antichrist is indeed an archetype, if you will. Think of it as a cookie cutter. Boom. You know, you can make a chocolate chip cookie, and you can make a, uh, you know, a oatmeal raisin cookie, but they're cut out of the same mold, that Antichrist is a mold, if you will, for every evil ruler. Futurists are going to say, hey, I hear what you're saying, but no, this is more literal and more specific. It's really talking about a specific ruler in a specific circumstance, in a specific seven-year period. That would be a point of disagreement. But absolutely a symbolic view of revelation would say that is probably likely what revelation means. Good question.
1: How do uh, Muslims and the concept of the caliphate relate to revelation, or are they parallel ideas?
0: Muslim eschatology is Very interesting. I'm going to give you a really short version because it's fascinating, but I can't do it justice. Okay, first of all, uh, Muslims basically agree with what Revelation says with an interesting twist. It won't be Jesus who comes again. It will be Muhammad who comes again. Jesus will be with him, and he is going to tell all the Christians in the world, you guys really got this wrong. I'm really a Muslim, and so should you be. Okay, So that's, that's Muslim eschatology. That's how they understand Revelation. Is like, yes, we agree with Revelation, but you Christians have misunderstood. Jesus is going to come with Muhammad and uh, basically going to say, you got it all wrong. We're going to defeat all the evil in the world, but you guys better become Muslims. So they see there is an eschatology that, where God is going to judge The world that there's going to be a battle. They tend to be more, uh, in general, I can't paint with a broad brush because there are different views amongst Muslims about the end times, but fundamentally they tend to see the followers of Muhammad, Muslims, as more involved in this battle. When we talk about Armageddon, and I'll just bring this up next time, you're going to see that the Christian idea of Armageddon and a Muslim idea are really different. One of the ways is... That, and For example, when, uh, if you think of Iran, they have a very, very specific Shiite kind of an eschatology that says, let's just get this war started, because once we get it started, Allah is going to jump in on our side. Christian eschatology, very different. No Christians think, Let's all get our guns and our nuclear weapons, and let's go after the bad guys, and God's going to jump in and help us win. That's, that's not a Christian idea, but that's very much a Muslim idea, which, by the way, is one of the reasons why, one of the reasons that Christians think that Iran's nuclear capabilities are particularly dangerous. I mean, other people besides Christians think this is not a good thing. But Christians say you combine that with this kind of an eschatology, and it makes it much more likely that ideologically that one would want to embark upon the unthinkable, okay? So, that, that's, uh, the Muslim eschatology is a little bit different than the Christian version, but it does involve an Armageddon, just a little different version than ours.
1: Um, how could the Catholic Church or the papacy being, have been considered as the Antichrist given that they believed in Christ and the Catholic Church still does believe in Christ?
0: Yes. So let me answer this for you from their perspective, all right? Because this isn't a commentary particularly on people who are Catholic. The Reformers looked at the doctrine and the teachings of the Catholic Church And the practices of the popes in that time. And the Renaissance popes, I don't care if you're Catholic or Protestant, that's an ugly picture. And so they looked at that and they protested. I mean, this is the whole Protestant Reformation, right? the Nailing the theses, you know, on the wall for Luther and John Calvin and saying, look, this is not right. They read the New Testament and they go, wait a minute, there are no priests in here, there's no penance in here, there's no indulgences in here. So, they looked at Catholic doctrine and they said, this does not match the Word of God. And they looked at the practices of the time, not at all Catholic people, but they looked at the popes of the time and they saw what they would call a prostituting, meaning a spiritual unfaithfulness in their allegiance to God and an allegiance to power and prestige and wealth. Does that make sense? So from their point of view, they could easily see the Catholic Church as even though they said, yes, we believe in God, but the Pope you know, was basically, you know, the papacy at that time was really, they felt like being unfaithful to that, untrue to the word of God, and completely off track in terms of their behavior. So they would see it as what you'd call an apostate church, or spiritually unfaithful. That's how they saw it. The doctrine and the practices at the time they felt like were untrue. They weren't arguing that the Catholic Church said that they believed in Jesus Christ. They were saying, not this Jesus Christ, apparently. The doctrines are man-made, not God-made. So that's how the historicists uh, would see the Catholic Church. And it's not just the Catholic Church. There are other views that this woman, this false prophet, is going to be any kind of Christian religion, if it were, name a, a different group of Christians that's non-Catholic, if they departed from the truth of God's word and began to pursue the world, they would understand it as any false teaching, any false teachers that came up, any Jezebel, any spiritually unfaithful person that said, yeah, I know the Bible says this, but this is what we're going to do. that make sense? So, it's not just the Catholic Church, but that was the target of most historicists to see the woman in that way. Okay? Good questions. Well, let's talk about a couple of interesting lessons. Look at this, uh, a couple of passages. Back from chapter 13, talking about the beast. Okay, this is when the, the Antichrist comes up and the false prophet comes up. This happens in chapter 13, these two beasts. Antichrist and false prophet. And the false prophet goes out and makes everybody worship the beast. This, If you're a futurist, worship this world ruler. But notice what happens. He forced everyone, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on his right hand or on his forehead that no one could buy or sell unless he had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of his name. This is the number of the beast. But specifically what it's saying is, is that one of the ways God's people will be oppressed... The first way is economically. Now look at the fall of Babylon the Great, the Antichrist, in chapter 18. The merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her because no one buys her cargoes anymore. Cargoes of gold, silver, precious stones, etc. Fine flour, wheat, cattle, sheep, horses, and the bodies and even the souls of men. God's judgment on Babylon is economic as well. So you see this interesting little, uh, really, a duality, but kind of a fairness in that the Antichrist persecuted God's people economically, and the economy of the Antichrist kingdom is destroyed. Completely economic catastrophe. And I want to point out to you that this idea of persecution being economic is something we don't think about. We tell stories of the early Christians being burned at the stake, being led into the arena and the animals out and all those things happen. In fact, we were recently in Israel and we were looking at an arena. And this was not like the in Rome. This is just these were all over the place in the ancient world. And there was an arena and across the way you could see two doors. One door was about this tall where the Christians would come out, and one door was about this tall where the wild beasts would come out that would tear them apart and kill them. So there was brutal persecution. But before that, if you read those letters to the seven churches and you look at history, Christians were economically persecuted. They were considered bad citizens. They were considered to be not godly people because they had these weird things and they wouldn't participate by worshiping the emperor, and consequently, They got no government contracts. I mean, this is a matter of historical. They were kicked out of the electricians' guild, and they just didn't get any work. And so Christians became destitute economically because they were outcasts. They were persecuted economically. And so you see that in Revelation, that the beast persecutes God's people economically, and God's judgment on the kingdoms of the world is economic disaster point that out to you because if you aren't, if your brain's not clicking and going, wait a minute, it should be. Recent events in our world are just right on the precipice of Christians beginning to be persecuted in economic ways. And I just want to say, I'll just say this and leave it here, that is not inconsistent with history and it is not inconsistent with prophecy. Second point. Another couple of passages that jump out of this, this idea of the judgment. One of the beasts, the, uh, the Antichrist, seemed to have had a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed, and the whole world was astonished and followed the beast. Whoever this ruler is, or whatever this world system is, is going to appear to have great power, even miraculous power, Futurists believe that this Antichrist is going to survive an assassination attempt and appear to come back to life, kind of imitating Christ, Antichrist. Jesus died and raised. Antichrist is going to at least appear to have been killed and come back, and people go, this could be the Christ. This could be Jesus. It's the Antichrist trying to mimic Jesus. The beast which you saw, look at chapter 17 talking about the future, once was, now is not, but we'll come back again. You see this idea of evil always trying to imitate God. And the point is is that people are going to be misled by the Antichrist, by the systems of the world. And you see that happening today as well. You see Christians in our world saying, you know what, these worldly ideas are actually enticing and they're right. They're being led to embrace things that are not true. And I only want to point out to you that that also is predicted. In other words, God says there will be people who are deceived by the the systems of this world. The scriptures say even Satan will masquerade as an angel of light. It's not like Satan's going to knock on your door. You're going to open the door, and there's a guy with horns and a pointy tail, and he says, hi, I'm Satan. Would you like to vote for me? Unlikely. How's Satan going to convince you? Satan's going to say, I can make your life better. I can make the world a better place. I'm really a good guy. And the next thing you know, you wake up and you are enslaved. That's what Revelation is predicting. And you see that same dynamic happening in our world. If you think about it, I'm just frame it this way and leave it there. Because I'm not trying to be political, but you, just, you, you have to be blind not to see some of these things really coming true yet again. And that is that the forces in our world that are allied against Christians, do they say, we're evil and we're opposed to God? No, they say, we are fair and tolerant and just, and you Christians are haters and intolerant and unjust. Do you understand what I'm saying? Satan always masquerades as the good. So those are two things that jump out of this idea of of chapter 17 and 18, that I think, regardless of your point of view of Revelation, you would have to say, this prophecy, if the seven-year tribulation isn't close, then this is gonna happen over and over, because it certainly appears to be happening now. And I guess my final statement would be this, talking about the, the church and state, the idea in America, we have this idea that we made up about the separation of church and state, But fundamentally in the scriptures, you actually see the idea of a conflict of church and state. It's happened throughout history, it is happening in our world now, and it will continue to happen. But the encouragement I would give you is simply this. God says, before we even get to the battle, I want to reassure you that this isn't even going to be a contest. The forces that persecute you in the world are doomed. When we get to Armageddon, this is not going to be a fair fight. But when we get to Armageddon next time, I think you'll find it quite interesting because I love the futurists because they have got the most interestingly complex ideas about Armageddon. But we'll talk about that next time. I'll see you guys next week.